Thank you, Jim, for reading so well and clearly for us. So let's pray now then for God's help, and let's keep this text open in front of us. Let's pray. Father, we ask you today to do this great miracle for us, to open our eyes and our ears and our hearts that we might be those who understand the great good news of Jesus Christ, his coming, his love, his salvation, and his rule. And we ask it for his namesake. Amen. 600,000 people in America die every year from heart disease. That's, on average, one in every four deaths. On average, one person nationally dies of heart disease every 36 seconds from cardiovascular disease, meaning around 60 Americans will die today during the length of this sermon. In fact, the stats are worse. Nearly half of all American adults have some kind of cardiovascular disease. It is one of the leading causes of death, and it costs the US taxpayer a staggering $363 billion a year. But the problem is that heart disease often has no obvious symptoms. Around one in five heart attacks have no pre-existing disease or symptom. It's called the silent killer. The damage then is done slowly and over a long period of time, so much so that many people are unaware that they actually have it. The medics therefore advise there should be an annual checkup. We need to go to the doctor and work out how well our hearts are. And then we need a treatment plan to keep our hearts healthy, eat less cholesterol, less red meat, do more exercise, and work at losing weight for a healthy heart. Well, now this morning it's about heart disease that Jesus wants to teach us. But in view is not the organ inside us that pumps blood around the body, but rather the part of us in which we respond to God. And he has for us in verse 17 a very penetrating and sobering question. And it's the question I want to hang over the whole of the sermon, or at least it's the question Jesus insists needs to hang. Here's the question from Jesus, the lead specialist, the consultant physician. <clears throat> verse 17, do you have a hardened heart? This morning then, we're in the doctor's office. The cuffs are on. He's checking our cholesterol. He's looking at the vital signs. He's doing the blood work and getting out the stethoscope. Because this morning, we need to see that this kind of heart disease is common amongst the people of God. And if left untreated, is fatal. But the good news is we're in the hands of a top specialist, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the treatment plan is the gospel of grace. If this morning we come with a heart that is hardening to God, the great good news is that he's here to save us if only we will listen to his word. But the point is that evil doesn't originate out there in the universe, but in here, inside my heart, and we've seen that. Because Mark is a highly sophisticated editor, 
And the theme of chapter six, seven, and eight is the heart. In chapter six, we saw the hardness of Herod's heart. In chapter seven, we saw the problem of the human heart. And now in chapter eight, we are to see that even the disciples, by nature, that's us, we have a hardened heart that needs the treatment plan of the gospel of grace. Three points if you're following on our sermon outlines, and the first is this, revelation, the power of Jesus displayed. Because in chapter eight, verses one to 10, the power of Jesus and his grace is on full display as this miracle now unfolds before our eyes. We're used to the story of the feeding of the 5,000. This is the story of the lesser known, but equally amazing, feeding of the 4,000. He meets a large crowd, verse one, they have nothing to eat. He calls his disciples and he says to them, verse two, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me for days. There's nothing for them to eat. Verse four, his disciples answer him, where will we be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? And he was asking them, how many loaves do you have? They say seven. And he directs them to sit on the ground. He takes the loaves, he gives thanks, he breaks it. He gives it to his disciples. Verse seven, a few small fish. He blesses it, he serves it, and verse eight, they all ate and were satisfied. Now the first thought of many critical scholars as we come to this text is it's the same miracle as the feeding of the 5,000. It's a flashback, it's a repeat. And there are many similarities. In the 5,000 and the 4,000, we're in the wilderness. In both, there's a huge crowd. In both, Jesus preaches. In both, he has compassion on the multitudes. In both, there's only a few loaves and a few fish. In both, he multiplies them. In both, they're satisfied. In both, he gets into a boat at the end and crosses the lake. So there are lots of similarities, and critical scholars suggest it's a flashback. It's the same miracle all over again, a repeat. But actually, there are a number of key differences that show us this is not the same miracle at all. First, these people have been here three days, not one, as in the feeding of the 5,000. The disciples here find seven loaves, not five. They pick up fewer fragments in the baskets. The word for fish in this account is different to the word for fish in the other account. The word for fish here is literally sardine which makes sense of this particular area of the Sea of Galilee where the sardine was the fish that they fished. And then there's the number. The feeding of the 5,000 was 5,000 male adults. And we wondered a few weeks ago if actually, if you throw in the children and the wives as well, if that miracle was not the feeding of the 5,000 at all. More likely, it was the feeding of the 25 to 30,000 because the wives and the children were there. But here, it is the feeding of the 4,000. And the killer knockdown argument is that in this miracle, Jesus calls their attention to the previous miracle. And the big difference is the location because the geography student will look at the map and notice where we are. 
In the feeding of the 5,000 or the 25,000, we were on Jewish soil, kosher. But now in the feeding of the 4,000, we are way up north, Gentile turf. And so the point is this, that the Jesus who is the redeemer of Israel in the feeding of the 5,000, feeding with the manna from heaven, is not only the savior of Israel, he's also the savior of the whole world. God's king has come. His rule is here. He's liberating the nation, but not just the nation, dirty, unclean Gentiles like us as well. Verse 8 is a picture of the sufficiency of Jesus to satisfy not just the people of Israel, but all of the nations of the world. Verse 8, they ate and they were satisfied. For in Christ, whoever we are, wherever we come from, in Him we will find life. We will be satisfied. Marie Antoinette was the last ever Queen of France. Just before the French Revolution, she became the Dauphin of France in May 1770 at the age of 14. She lived in the, Paris, uh, the Palace of Versailles, which is just outside Paris. And it is one of the most incredible places on the planet I have visited and can tell you it is a picture of exorbitance, long hallways decked in gold, mirrors, gilt, French doors, chandeliers, wooden floors. The whole palace exudes luxury and excess. And that's how she lived, as a profligate in a promiscuous life of excess. Whatever she wanted, she got. But soon before her execution, as she reflected on her life of luxury and wealth and excess, she wrote in her journal, nothing tastes. And what was true for her then is true today. I was speaking to a friend just this last week, and he was speaking of a British businessman who's a close friend of his. They were at university together. This man has a property portfolio of over $250 million. He owns an apartment in the Upper East Side of Manhattan, three houses in central London, two in Hong Kong and in Dubai. But here's the rub. He's an alcoholic and a depressive, and he's lost. Because professional success and financial wealth and relational happiness and personal satisfaction can never satisfy only Jesus Christ. So Augustine puts it like this. Oh God, you create us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Are you looking for that, that missing jigsaw piece? Are you looking for the key to make sense of the life that is so quickly evaporating before you, a future with forgiveness beyond the grave? In this the miracle of the feeding of the 4,000 in deepest, darkest, unclean Gentile territory, we find hope, not just for the kosher Jew, but for the filthy, the outcast, the shameful, the dirty. An amazing miracle, for God has revealed His Son. Well, there's our first point.
And surely now, the answer of the world, the response is going to be one of incredible amazement, trust, obedience, and awe. But the second point we have is a shock. For second, resistance. Revelation now becomes resistance. The rule of Jesus Christ rejected. In verse 10, Jesus gets into the ferry, and now he crosses the lake to continue his ministry as he sails into the district of Dalmanutha. But there's a reception party awaiting him on the beach, and it's ominous. And the showdown begins in verse 11 as it's introduced abruptly and without warning from left field. The Pharisees came out and began to argue, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. The word argue there in verse 11 is far too weak. The original word uh, is much more forceful and it's, it's aggressive. There's definite hostility now. They've come to harass him, literally to attack him, to harangue him. This is not a friendly debate, a a polite little chat, um, a feisty little discussion. The gloves are off, it's malicious, and it's dark. They want him deplatformed. They want him canceled, imprisoned, executed, dead, buried, gone. And in chapter 3, verse 6, the plot to kill has already begun. Here is the rejection of the rescuer. Imagine we're in the emergency room, and there's a patient there bleeding to death. He's got hours to live, and the medics need to get him into theater for the operation quickly. And they say to him, you are dying. We have hours to save your life. Your vitals are not good, your pulse is low, your blood pressure is through the roof, your oxygen is falling, the internal bleeding is continuing. And then as the surgeon arrives, in order to take him into the operating theater, he shouts, how dare you tell me what I need from you? And he, and he rips off the wires. And imagine as he, as he pushes the nurse and the surgeon away, And then it says, if you so much as to lay a finger on me, I will instruct my lawyers to begin a lawsuit. And then he calls the police to get them out, and he he pushes the surgeon away. That would be a, a violent, dramatic rejection of the rescuer who has come to save his life. And that's the picture here. And so in verse 12, Jesus' response is sobering. He sighs deeply. Here is God's king on earth groaning in agony, exasperation at the stubborn rebellion of humanity. There's real emotion in the sigh. It's one of indignation and one of grief. He's grieved at their unbelief. They demand a sign, but the sign is in the middle of their faces. Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say, no sign will be given. They are so perverse. They demand a sign, clarification from heaven that you are God's king. But it's incredible. The Jerusalem post has been full for months 
years as to the power of this Messiah King. The dead have been raised, the deaf hear, the blind see, the storm is calmed. The sign has been given. There's nothing wrong with the revelation from heaven. The problem is the response from earth. And so many people are like this today. It's how people respond, and so we ought not to be surprised in our evangelism. When you explain the gospel of the love of God and the mercy of Jesus, don't be surprised if there's hostility in the response or if people try to trip you up in the arguments and trap you. Or if they say, well, I will believe in Jesus if an angel from heaven comes down and gives me a sign. And I will believe in Jesus if only God gives me a sign and speaks to me from heaven. The conclusive sign. But the conclusive sign is here. Jesus is here. And he's risen from the dead, which is the ultimate and final conclusive sign from God. Because the problem is not with the sign from heaven, but the rebellion on earth. And the warning of Jesus is that if we continue to reject the sign from heaven, if we continue to say no to the revelation of God from heaven, there will come a point where in judicial judgment, God leaves us alone. In the Old Testament, the prophet speaking God's word says, my spirits will not always strive with man. If we continue to reject his love and mercy and grace, is it that one day his patience will run out? Because the key verse here is not the verse we would expect to be key, but it's there in verse 13. The key verse, leaving them, he went. They ask for a sign to trap Jesus as they pass judgment on him. But in passing judgment on him, judgment is being passed on them. The king has come to rescue. They've rejected the rescue. Verse 13, leaving them, he went. C.S. Lewis puts it like this, speaking of those who reject Jesus Christ. One day, he writes, the lost will enjoy forever the horrible freedom they have demanded. And yet our story and this drama becomes actually even more challenging for us this morning. Because inevitably, we're thinking, well, the Pharisees, they are like that. They are and were hard of heart. But the big surprise for us is how Jesus now turns from his disciples, from, from, the, from the Pharisees, I'm sorry, to the disciples, and it's a major shock. The heart of Herod, hard. The heart of the Pharisees, hard. But in verse 19, the camera closes in on the heart of the disciples, and the question of verse 15, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. Now, we're all used to warning signs, and we heed them. I was on a beach in Sydney around 10 years ago, and there was a massive sign that read, shark net torn, do not swim. So I didn't. 
Maybe you're on a golf course in Florida, and it says, beware the alligators. Or you're about to take a cigarette, and there's a warning from the Surgeon General. Or you're driving your car, and there's a, a red flashing light on the dashboard. Or you're about to cross into somebody's house through the garden, and there's a sign that says, beware the dog. Well, here there is a warning from heaven, and the word is strong. Jesus says, watch out, beware, be careful, take action, be alert, be vigilant, be on guard for the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod's. And the tense implies that this is a vigilance we have to keep up again and again, all of the time, stay alert. My grandmother used to bake bread. I can vividly remember it as a young boy, staying with her, and she would make the bread. There would be an open fire, and then she would lay down the breads in front of the fire, having put the yeast in. And I would run in every hour to see it. It was extraordinary. You'd see it rising, because inside is the yeast. I don't really understand it, but the point is that the leaven or the yeast has a pervasive power that permeates and changes the whole. In Jewish circles, this leaven or yeast always stood for corruption. It was always regarded as evil. So the warning of Jesus is of an influence which can poison, toxify, and destroy our hearts. So what is the leaven? What is this yeast? that both Herods and the Pharisees have in common. And it is this, surely, a refusal to trust the gospel of grace. It is a refusal to submit to the rule of Jesus, this good, gracious King. Of course, the Pharisees do that in a religious way through legalism and traditionalism. Herod does it in a more secular way as he cuts off the head of John the Baptist. But whether it's secular no to grace, or whether it's a religious no to grace, the warning of Jesus is of a heart that is not willing to accept and trust and submit to a kingdom of grace. This kind of heart disease is common, says Jesus. And left untreated, this kind of heart disease is fatal. As he turns to them and says, do you not see and understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Verse 18, you have eyes, but don't you see? the kingdom of grace, and have ears, but don't hear the kingdom of grace. A calloused heart, thickened, hardened, deadened. It's possible to be in church, saying the creed, singing the hymns, going to growth group, and yet grace still hasn't made its way through into my heart, and it hasn't dissolved like sugar in my coffee into the whole of my life. A secular no to grace as I cut off the head of the prophet, a, a religious no to grace as I harden my heart in a traditionalism and legalism 
that denies Christ. And this heart warning is the consistent warning of the Bible. Psalm 95, today if you hear his voice of grace, don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Or the writer to the Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 3, see to it, brothers, that none of you has a wicked heart of, of unbelief that turns away from the living God. It's as if then we are with the audiologist this morning, and Jesus is saying, how's your hearing? Do you hear the gospel of grace? It's as if we're with the eye specialist, as Jesus says, do you see this, this kingdom of grace? But really, we're with the heart specialist, as my heart is scanned and x-rayed. How's your heart? Are you under the rule? And are you submitting to this, this king of extraordinary grace? Because the heart crisis is really a crisis of theology and a crisis in our doctrine of God. We read the Old Testament law and it frightens us. And we believe God is some kind of ogre. But somebody put it like this this week, it was so striking. So often we forget that Christ has hushed the law's loud thunder and quenched Mount Sinai's flame. So often we forget that there is refuge from the horrible requirements of the law in the arms of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And if only we were to see that and believe that, we would be moved from hearts of stone to hearts of flesh, as in seeing the love of God we would long to obey him, not through gritted teeth in our Sunday best, but because we love him, because he loves us. If you're hardening your heart, the answer is not to grit your teeth and get on with it, finger pointing. The answer is to see the beauty and love, mercy, majesty of Jesus Christ in his salvation for you and the you he loves. Which takes us to our third and final points, redemption. The, the rescue of Jesus, trusted. Now there's a world a famous painting, and I actually saw a, a copy of it in the office just the other day. It's called Christ, the Light of the World by a pre-Raphaelite painter called Holman Hunt. You'll have seen it, even if you don't recognize the title. It's considered by many probably one of the most important depictions of Christ ever. And it's taken from Revelation 3.20, where Jesus says to the church in Ephesus, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, I will come in. This painting actually hangs in the chapel of Keble College Oxford, which was two minutes from where I used to live. And I, I used to take students to see it. It was just behind the Lord's table in the chapel. And the thing that you notice, which is very, very important for Holman Hans, is that the handle of the door is not on the outside. And that's deliberate. Jesus stands knocking, 
but the handle is on the inside. So only the person on the inside can let Jesus Christ in. It's beautiful, extraordinary art, but very dangerous theology. Because theologically speaking, the person on the inside is dead. Theologically speaking, the person on the inside is deaf. Theologically speaking, the person on the inside is blind. All of these metaphors are used in Old and New Testament. We are dead and we cannot find life. We are deaf and can't hear. We are blind and cannot see. We are lost and cannot be found. The handle is not on the inside, theologically speaking, but on the outside. And it is Jesus that has to open the door in the words of the hymn, thou must save and thou alone. And in verse 21, as Jesus now arrives in the capital of the region, Bethsaida, we see the sovereignty of Jesus in salvation. He arrives, meets a man, verse 22, with this desperate plight. He's blind. And in the first century, that was devastating. There was no Obamacare, no disability credits. There was no help. Blind, can't see, can't work, can't support himself. And he stands, this helpless, hopeless man, as the picture of us. And here is the picture of sovereign grace, the mercy and abundant love of Jesus as he now moves to the man and heals him. And our first reading was from Isaiah 35. And in Isaiah 35, the great sign that God's king had come to bring salvation was that the blind will see. Here it is. Also that the deaf will hear. That's just happened at the tail end of Mark 7. But ever since the beginning, humanity has lived in rebellion to God. Only God can save us. Here it is. He took the blind man, verse 23, by the hand. He brought him out of the village. He spat on his eyes, laid his hands on him, and said, do you see anything? Verse 24, he looked up and said, I see men as trees walking around. Verse 25, he laid his hands on his eyes. He looked intently, and his sight was restored. It's a very strange miracle. It's weird. Uh, first of all, Jesus asks, um, has it been effective? Do you see yet? What's all this, this spitting and touching? And then he, he, he half sees, but doesn't really quite see. It's weird because he's calmed the storm with his word. He's raised the dead with a word. What is all this touching and spitting? It appears that this miracle is really hard. Because it is. This miracle is hard. Actually, this miracle is impossible because this miracle is the miracle, which is salvation. Because this miracle can only be achieved as this king goes to Calvary and dies at Golgotha to take the full judicial penalty, all of my guilt and shame, and the full force and ferocity of the judgment of God. This miracle may be free, but it's not cheap. It's hard. It will take the death of Jesus on the cross to secure it. Franny Cosby was a, and still is, a world-famous hymn writer. Did you know she wrote 8,000 hymns? 
By the end of the 19th century, she was known as the queen of Christian song. But at six weeks old, she developed an eye infection. The doctors didn't quite know what was going on, and she went blind, and was blind for the whole of her life. Later in her life, Fanny Crosby said this, if perfect sight were offered to me tomorrow, I would not accept it. For when I get to heaven, I want the first face that I see to be Jesus Christ, my Savior. I don't want to see anything, just Christ. And this is the miracle. The first face this man sees is Jesus Christ. And as we come to Christ, it is his face and his vision that needs to transfix us. That's the mark of a healthy heart. We've actually already sung of it in that great song together, Be Thou My Vision, O Lord of My Heart. How is your heart? Hardening in cynicism, doubt, bitterness, and anger because life is so hard for you? Or soft to this savior of grace, this, this sovereign of power. Surely, as we see his revelation and his rescue, we sing with Wesley, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. But if your heart is hardening and drifting and wandering, the answer isn't the wagging finger or grit your teeth and pull your socks up. The medicine, the treatment plan, is this gospel of grace, the Savior who loves you and at the cross has saved you. Let's pray together. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. Father, we admit this morning that our hearts so easily wander and so easily harden. Grant us the grace to be those who trust in Christ, who submit to his gracious rule, and would his beauty, majesty, and grace be the vision, and would he be alone Lord of our hearts. We ask it through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.